Tonight I'd like to speak about equanimity, which is the fourth of those divine abodes, abodes, those protective places that we can dwell in, in our own hearts. It's said to be the crown of the other three. Equanimity is. And the other three, just to review again, are loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. It's said that the first three, if they're not imbued with equanimity, they may dwindle away. And so that it's equanimity that gives each of the other three their ability to grow and to be boundless in nature. It's also said that equanimity allows the uh, other three to stay stable. It's like a stabilizing factor for all of the other three uh, Brahma-viharas. But the great quality of equanimity in its uh, kind of weaving into and being part of and its energetic quality, which is part of all the other three, its ability to have this boundless nature so that when we uh, pervade metta, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy to an individual, to a community, to a nation, to all of the world, it said that it's not limited then to a particular range of beings. And with equanimity, it's not bound by exclusivity, by partiality, by preference, or by prejudice. That equanimity endows it with this ability to be boundless in this way. And that's why it's said in the text that these four Brahma-viharas are illimitable or boundless. The uh, Dalai Lama calls it um, immeasurable. They're immeasurable. They all have this sort of immeasurable impartiality, which is because of equanimity. So equanimity is, in and of itself, a very powerful factor, a very powerful Uh, energy that we can uh, practice, that we can deepen, but it's also part of the other three. And it's what makes the other three uh, so boundless and divine. So it has all this this quality of this ability to embrace everything. It has this all-embracing range, equanimity does. It's what allows our hearts to give and be generous and to let everything in and not be like uh, freaked out by what we open to. There's this passage in the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the Uh, texts that gather the the teachings of the Buddha. And in it, it says this phrase, which I love a lot, nothing in this world is left out nor remains apart from a heart releasing loving kindness. From a heart releasing loving kindness. 
And it is equanimity, which is part of loving-kindness or metta, that gives us the capacity to do this, to care for all of life, and also to see the world in its, in, with wisdom eyes, to see the world in its, all its joys and sorrows, and not get attached to what we like, not either push away what's hard to experience, but to allow it all in and still care about it, to release loving kindness. So whether it's easy, whether it's difficult to bear, it's equanimity that allows this kind of open, spacious quality of loving kindness. It reminds me of the title of Sharon's book, A Heart as Wide as the World. And that's, that's the... That's the direction that we take in this practice. There's a a passage I like from Rilke that goes, I live my life in growing orbits, which move out over the things of the world. Perhaps I can never achieve the last, but I give myself to it. So that opening, 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 opening of the heart is what happens because of equanimity. And as much as it opens to, it can also care. So nothing in this world is left out nor remains apart from a heart releasing loving kindness. And I appreciate that particular translation when the word releasing is used. Releasing because it implies to me, and it also gives me the picture of some natural inclination of the heart, some natural tendency of the heart. It's like this is the heart doing its thing. This is the way the energy works of the heart to release. And with equanimity, it's just that we release the barriers. We, we kind of let the barriers dissolve so that this can happen this natural releasing, this natural life force of the heart, which wants to give. That's the tendency, this generosity of the heart, of metta. It's experienced and subjectively experienced and described as, when, when people describe the place that they're in, or when I feel it too, It's like an open, spacious stillness. But that has a balance to it. It's not like this open, spacious stillness where we're flip-flopping around in it. But it's a place where we feel quite balanced within that spaciousness, where a lot of equipoise exists. So a lot of times we think of the word balance and even equanimity And we think, or we picture this kind of narrow place where we have this precarious balance in this narrow place. But it's not that at all. It's like this very, very big place that we take a stance in. And a lot of times in the text, it's depicted as a mountain. And uh, here, you know where our little cottages are, they've 
cut, they've thinned some of the forest out, so we're able to see afar to, I think it's called Mount Wachusett, um, far away. And it, it's, um, it stands out even in these, you know, relatively flat lands. And when I look out over that way, you know, as I look out too on the mountain that I live on, it's a 10,000 foot mountain, Haleakala, and I live on the lower part of it. But it's easy for me to look out and see the top of it from where I am. And there's so much that comes about on that mountain, as the mountains anywhere. You know, the, the sun, the heat, the cold, the rain, lightning, many, many conditions, many, many conditions, pleasant, unpleasant, easy to experience, hard to experience. And yet the mountain stays steady. The mountain stays steady. And this is one of the qualities of equanimity also. It's steadiness in the face of changing conditions. It's also likened to a sky in, in different spiritual texts. Equanimity is likened to a sky that's able to contain everything, everything, yet not hold on, nor push away. You know, that what comes in the sky arises, comes and changes, the clouds, the rain, the lightning, objects of the sky, whatever, come, change, and go. But there's no clinging. The sky doesn't cling to it. If it's pleasant, it doesn't push it away or resist it. If it's unpleasant, and that's why it's likened to the sky also. So two images of equanimity that somehow, sometimes we feel in our own direct experience. Sometimes people also hear the word equanimity and this sense of or feeling of or old picture of an emotional emptiness is there, is kind of uh, the connotation, an old connotation of equanimity equanimity. But I really want to kind of um, describe it and, and give you metaphors and ways that you can understand it and experience it in your own hearts and minds so that that old way of knowing it is, it, it, it's not true. It's not an emotional emptiness. It's full. It's full of whatever care it needs to have in order to get through life and to deepen into wisdom. So it can be full of metta, yet balanced and big and wide with equanimity. It can be full with joy, yet also not going to the extreme of exuberance or envy. It can be full with compassion when it's facing suffering, yet not going to the extremes of of the uh, compassion near and far enemy, which is uh, pity and cruelty. So it allows kind of this inner balance, yet this wide fullness, so that we have this ability with that kind of wide angle 
view of things, to see what's going on with more wisdom, with more inclusivity, with more fullness of heart. Um, We can see how things are, the nature of things in this way. We can also feel when it's this way that this time, these moments of equanimity are infused with love and caring, whichever kind that it needs for that moment. So we begin with equanimity to really get intimate with our moment-to-moment experience of truth, with truth in a bigger picture, yet not get caught anywhere or less caught in what appears, the appearances of the mind of the world. The vision that I'm holding recently that gives me uh, kind of the best memory of an experiential understanding of this is what I mentioned uh, a few nights ago when I visited India. Really, it was a pilgrimage to visit Manindra, my first Dharma teacher, continues to be uh, one of my Dharma teachers. And um, this was a time when we went out to the Ganges River, hired a boat. It was our last day in India, and early in the morning before we were leaving uh, Varanasi, we went to the bank of the Ganges and had hired a boat. And we were going to take the boat before dawn onto the river. And this was, you know, Menindra's wanting to see the dead bodies floating, which was uh, didn't happen, but <laughs> a lot of other just insightful openings came from <coughs> taking that trip, that journey. So we went before dawn, and it was a clear very warm morning and it's it's kind of the thing to do to go to see a sunrise uh, on the Varanasi uh, banks of Varanasi on the Ganges River and the Ganges is really wide at that place so wide that at this particular place uh, where you go from the marketplace of Varanasi onto the river and you look across the river most of what you see across the river is not another piece of land, but it's the far horizon. It's just all water. And so it's like a sea almost rather than a river. So we took the boat out, and it was sort of a a very visceral sense of my heart with all the ups and downs that we experienced on our journey, uh, inner and outer journey in India that experience of going down the river. And to my left, as I looked, the sun was cresting over the river, over the water. And the reflection on the water made it even bigger in a way. And the gold-yellow ball just cresting up and coming up. It was quite breathtaking. It took your breath away. It was awe-inspiring. It was like, it's it's an experience I think each of you may know it in your own way with other things in nature where you just stop thinking, where you're just there in the moment and everything else, the chatter in the mind just stops and you can be fully present with that kind of beauty 
And yet on the right, as we were going down, as I looked to the right, there were the burning ghats. And apart from seeing the, the cremations that were happening on the pyres in full view on the, uh, on the side of the riverbank, there was also, in, in what hit my heart more, were the families grieving around uh, the families of, of the deceased that were around and grieving. So my heart opening on one side, you know, in incredible appreciation for the beauty of life, light and warmth that the sun gives, and just the exquisite beauty of the sight itself. And then on the other side, feeling my heart close to, you know, it's so sad to see what's happening, the grief that the families go through, the sorrow. But it's part of life. Both are part of life. In one moment even, you know, to, to open that wide that you have to accept all of that. And then also on one side, sitting there next to me, um, my beloved teacher that have, I've gone through so much with in my spiritual growth and um, you know last day don't know if I'll see him again he's 86 this year good health but you never know so you know appreciation for him deep gratitude for giving the first to really present the Dharma to me and also sadness you know for leaving and my friends there, Dharma friends beside me. It's so deep appreciation to have them there with me on the journey. And then on the banks of the river again, the poverty, the destitution that's in, in any big city like that. But it's so raw in, in India. It's so in your face there. And so on one side, the beauty and the other side, the kind of rawness of how things are, how life is. Not easy to open that to all of that. How can our hearts, how can my heart hold it all, and sometimes even in one moment, hold it all? How can I learn to be uh, accepting? This is the way it is. This is what, these are the cards that life has dealt me. joy and sorrow, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, you know, all of the vicissitudes that were mentioned the other night. So I see as I'm able to open to it all more and more and more and more, and every time I open to something and come to something and I reach an edge, then I know, okay, I'm at the brink of opening to something more, even though it's it feels tight here, and, it, and I know it's an edge. I open to that, and then I maybe come back in a cocoon a little bit, and then I open a little bit more. I go kind of through a threshold and past that edge and to another wider space. And maybe I have to come in to take a breath again, kind of back off and come back into a little cocoon. And then I open up again, and maybe wider this time, And so bit by bit, there's this 
opening that and, and wider and wider that takes place because in a way I just allow myself to touch the edge and to say this is as wide as I can go, take a breath, and maybe at another time do it again. And I learned to see everything that way, everything my heart can hold, and not just what I think it should be or how I think the world should work, you know, and, and just kind of fixate around the injustice of the world and the chaos and, and the sorrow. And I mean, yes, that's true too. That, that, that's true too, but there's also the beauty of it. And can I stay in balance and see the transience of it all and be in harmony with that truth that it does go up and down things come and go it's beauty and it's terror and as Rilke said you know just let it all happen nothing is final beauty and terror so how can I do that and not succumb to the oppressiveness of it How can I stay in balance? And it's equanimity that allows us to do that. It's said that equanimity rests the mind before it falls into extremes. This is the one quality, the one function of equanimity, to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. So there's quite a deep balance of heart going there when that happens. A balance, yet with very deep care. Because the balance that's happening is happening because of other supporting qualities that are nearby, that are sort of um, grounding, supporting, helping equanimity to take place. So it's said that the one... uh, grounding and interwoven quality is the quality of awareness itself that's nearby, that's interwoven into equanimity. So just the quality of allowing ourselves or allowing the moment to be with full awareness of what's going on, yet not closing down because it's hard or unpleasant, or not running towards something that's more pleasant, not closing down with aversion or running after another state out of attachment. It's also said that um, there are these four other qualities, each of them in some kind of balance to another, which help equanimity. Those qualities are, on one side, energy, This energy is not, you know, a very ecstatic, uh, forceful kind of energy, but it's a gentle, persevering kind of effort that we have, a very patient effort that we have in our practice to just keep going. And balancing that is a calm. So these two qualities, energy and calmness of mind, And these five that I'm going to mention, I've already mentioned mindfulness or awareness, energy and calm or tranquility. These are part of the five, what are called the five powers, the five 
meditative powers. So the other balance that's going on is the faith, is faith. It's the faith in ourselves, really, to keep going, to just allowing ourselves to take another step, even if that step is what we call backwards. But not really backwards, it's really taking a step back into a, a sense of safety so that we can go forward again at another time. So the faith to take a step, a very conscious step into what needs to be taken next. And what balances that is wisdom. The wisdom to know where to go, what step to take. The wisdom, in a a deeper sense, that doesn't get us caught in either attachment or aversion, that sees the transience of everything and lets it take its place, its way, its process. So these balancing factors of awareness, faith and wisdom, energy and calm. So with these, we see, yes, in this world, it's changing. It's a changing mix of joy and sorrow. And we don't have really a lot of control over what happens in this world outside of us. But what we do have some control over is how we respond to what's going on in this world. Or into, we have uh, control over what happens as we respond to a previous moment's experience. We can either respond with fear or with uh, some kind of attachment or any other form of reactivity Or we can respond with an open, spacious stillness. But it takes training to do that. It takes the ability to know we can do it by going there over and over again, turning the mind towards that place. And so with that ability to open to this, the vastness of this changing world and all that it contains, with equanimity, we're able to see into a moment, maybe, into the depth of the moment, inwardly. And we're also able to see into the vastness of this world and all of its various ways. And because of that, it gives us this way of feeling so connected with life. When we can really be intimate with it on a deep level, moment to moment, which allows us to open to the vastness of it all in life. It's equanimity that gives us this ability to be truly intimate with what's happening because we're not reacting to what's happening. Uh, This is from Black Elk. Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing, in a sacred manner, the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes, 
as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that made one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. And I saw that it was holy. So it's equanimity that it really brings us, because of that intimacy with life and that fearlessness that we are able to come to life with, we're really able to experience that sacredness in a different way because we're not running away from what's hard, but we see what's hard with, a diff- with different eyes and we see what's joyful with different eyes because we don't lose sight of the other side. We keep it all in view. And in that way, too, in that way that we feel so connected to that sacredness, we see the interconnectedness of all of life. So we're able to face things in a more calm, abiding way. This is what equanimity allows us to do to act from that place, not from a place of uh, reactivity, which it can either be attachment or aversion or confusion, but really from a calmer, clearer place. This is a, I'd like to tell an old story that I tell on Manindra. Uh, and um, he uses the phrase a lot, just to give you some background to this story. He uses this phrase a lot, the phrase, this is the law. And when he uses the phrase, the word law, it means dharma. Dharma means the natural way of things, the way things are. Not just, you know, that nature uh, and, and its seasons take place one after another, but in a very, very deep, liberating way. This is the way things are. It reminds me, uh, and, and he used to always say to me, just see things the way they are. This is the law. And in the evenings, uh, or some time of the day, he used to chant that chant, Anicca Vata Sankara. Some of you may have heard it, but Anyway, the, the chanting in Pali doesn't mean so much, but the words in English are so meaningful to me. All things arise and pass away. All conditioned things arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. So this is what the Dharma means, understanding this deeply. So one time, uh, this was many years ago, Manindra needed some surgery. And so a few of us got together and gathered our resources and uh, had him uh, have some surgery. He had something, a uh, hernia, that had to be reoperated on. And so I was the most likely one to take care of him, of, of many of us who had... Uh, wanted this to happen, Joseph and Sharon and other Dharma friends. And also, because I live in a warm climate, it was the most likely place for him to recover. So he went through the surgery. Afterwards, I brought him home. And so I was, uh, w- was so happy to be able to give him 
this my love and energy to go through this process of healing. He had a problem for a long time. And so I wanted his surroundings, of course, to be very peaceful, to be very healing. And so, you know, I tried to arrange everything in advance and kind of um, talk to the family and the children about my schedule and to please let's try to behave ourselves as much as possible, you know. And, uh, and of course, there was underlying a lot of this, you know. I, I probably wanted to impress him that I, was, I had a, a good family life and, uh, you know, a good, good practice, etc. So at that time, my three eldest ones were well into their teenage years, and the youngest one was kind of trying to prove herself in, at the time, testing her strength. Um, and so I was sitting at the dining room table with him and just made him a little meal to eat, and it was midday. And I was like sitting here, and he was sitting at, at the other corner just nearby to my left. And we were quietly eating, and, and he doesn't usually speak when, when he eats, so we were just quietly eating together. And in the adjacent room to my right was that youngest daughter uh, who who's given permission to tell the story long ago. She, she loves me to tell stories on her, by the way. And, um, and uh, her father, uh, who's been a wonderful father to her and all the children, but this time they got into an argument. She was testing her strength, and her father was trying to, you know, be a father in as best he could and so they started arguing and then it got really big and they started yelling at each other and it was really hard you know for me everything that I wanted to portray was breaking apart <laughs> you know the life as I wanted Manindra to see me living was not that life and uh, and so we were sitting there as they were arguing, and I, Manindra had his head down, but I looked at him and I noticed his, his eyes were darting to the room and looking back and forth and looking at me and kind of, you know, I don't think he's, this is a natural environment for him. But for us, it is a natural environment. I mean, we argue in the family, you know, but it, it's not usually to this kind of degree, to this escalation. <laughs> And so everything that I didn't want was happening, you know, swearing, loud, you know, yelling, and disrespect. And so I was so embarrassed. It's like I, I just, I, I didn't know whether to put my head down and cry or run out of the house. And I thought about the neighbors, you know, the neighbors could hear. It was really awful. And... Um, I didn't know, you know, I, I had this thing to go to them too. I was thinking, I'd go to them and, silent, and silently I was thinking I'd go right up to them and scream, shut up, you know. So, but I wasn't going to do that. So uh, everything was going through my mind, everything that you could possibly imagine and more. And so Manindra was sitting there to the side and with his right hand, he calmly reached over and the palm of his hand just gently gripped my, the top of my left forearm. And he said in a very calm voice, Surrender to the law.
It was, I, you know, I use that phrase all the time. I mean, that was a long time ago, but I use it all the time in life and in sitting when things are really hard. I just go back to that phrase, surrender to the law. This is how it is. You know, I've, whatever situation is here, I, I'm not going to figure out why it's here. It's just here, and if, I'm, if I spend all my energy resisting it, then I won't know what to do or how to learn from it and all that other stuff. So, <laughs> they proceeded to, my daughter tore around me, you know, and ran to her room and slammed the door, and her father said, open the door, and she said, no. And he said, open the door or else I'll kick the door in. And she said, go ahead. And that's what he did. <laughs> it, I mean, it just got that intense. And, but that's how it is. I mean, that's why it's really hard for me to sit up here and pretend, you know, like things are easy for me in my life because... This is a reality of how it is, and my lesson is to face it all. It's not to cower. It's not to drown in, you know, in it. But it's to find a way that I can respond with some kind of care and courage and wisdom. And so I did, you know, after I kind of gathered my senses instead of running up and saying, shut up, you know, I just got up and went over and said, that's enough. And so it was enough. It was enough. I mean, that I had some, a little bit of control over, but a lot of things we don't have control over. How are we going to handle it? So there can be a sense of calm a sense of relaxing into the truth of a chaotic moment, whether it's, you know, being propelled from or prompted from the outside or whether it's just from the inside. Can there be that level of acceptance, not resignation, not resignation, but acceptance in the moment? This is how it is. Can I act from that place? Can I get up and do something to ameliorate, take an action, or maybe decide that the best thing to do is not to act? No, either way, it's with wisdom and not out of confusion, which is what happens when there's no equanimity. So with equanimity, we don't just sit there and take it, you know, and we take action, but from a helpful place, a cleaner place. So not taking action from reactivity, or which is the far enemy of uh, equanimity. Reactivity, sometimes it's uh, said partiality. This is the way it's said in the text sometimes. Partiality, because we're either partial to attachment or aversion, depending on the situation. But whichever one it is, we do it in a, in a reactive, confused, ignorant way, not with wisdom. So we are able with, 
without reactivity to do it more from the true sense of response ability to you know re- to really be responsible for our actions and take part in what we can in the world that kind of response social responsibility from a caring and calm not from reactivity nor is it from passivity or indifference which is the near enemy which can seem like equanimity but it's more like you know where we're frozen we can't move or you know out of fear or out of weakness so one has strength one has weakness one has the ability to act with compassion and clarity the other one doesn't have the ability uh, when we act with reactivity or even with when we don't act when we're frozen so when we have this kind of uh, intimate view of what's going on and wide-angled view also it gives us the opportunity to see where there might be any attachment where there might be any aversion and then to let it go or to see that it's taking its course it's letting go of itself when we see it deeply we see that we really don't need to let go like we can control it but just by seeing it deeply we see that everything's letting go of itself really it just takes the calmness and the stillness of mind to see that that's happening and when that's happening then it's like a moment of grace it's like a moment of protection it may not be forever but at least in that moment it's there and when it's there for a moment and another moment then we know that ah that's a place of protection we can go there maybe we can know the way there more clearly so we're not caught in extremes the mind rests before it reaches any extremes and we're living from a wider faster place in the heart this is written by the venerable achan sumedho the mind is like space there's room in it for for everything or nothing we always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind armies can come into the mind and leave butterflies rain clouds or nothing all things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance this is our practice of letting go so it allows for that space because the space is so big and the the view is so intimate it allows for that ability to see that deeply into the transience of things even the transience of aversion and attachment and so we see that it's letting go of itself if we can just be still have a calm abiding in the moment and then that doesn't have to be clung to identified with acted from it said that love or metta compassion sympathetic joy continue 
can continue to emanate from the heart and be acted from in the world in its true nature, only with equanimity. Because there's no clinging to either of the vicissitudes or the near and far enemies of any of those three Brahma-viharas. There's no clinging or identifying with the hatred or attachment of metta, the near and far enemies. There's no clinging or identifying with the cruelty or the pity, the near and far enemy of compassion. And the same with sympathetic joy, exuberance or um, envy. We see deeply what they truly are. And we just let them take their course without getting hooked. So it's also said that it keeps metta from turning into attachment in that way. Because here's an example. We fall in love. And when we fall in love, all we see, of course, we, our mind just rivets around what is beautiful and good about that person. And it doesn't see the other side, you know, not till the honeymoon's over. You know. It doesn't see the other side, usually. But with equanimity, we are able to open to all of it and develop a true metta there and not this attached kind of love, attached only to what we like in the individual, because we, we open to the wholeness of that person, and we're able to handle and be with, yes, this shadow side of that person also exists. And I can perhaps learn to open to that too. So we see the other side. We can care about the other side also. Equanimity is said to uh, keep us from getting lost in pity and grief that go on in this world when we see it in this world because we also remember the joy as uh, Carol talked about last night. So we have this wide-angle lens and, and we also see that sympathetic joy doesn't turn into this uncontrollable exuberance. You know, we keep sight of, yes, yes, there's joy, but this too shall pass. And so we have a balance. I have a a Tai Chi teacher, Flora. Uh, She passed away last year, and it's what put me on this quest, sort of, to see my teachers, um, to pay respects to them. So she told me once, I'll always remember about when I was in this great exuberant joy one time. She said to me, something like paraphrasing her, when the pendulum swings to one side, it has to swing to the other side next. So be careful about your, you know, ecstatic joy. Make sure there's some equanimity there. So I always remember that, you know, and, and a lot of times I can feel actually the feel the joy more deeply if I'm not letting the energy spill out all over the place. 
Just really feel it more quietly. So it allows us to stay open. And that openness allows us to deepen more in, in the moment and in the bigger picture. And when there is this big open sky, this sense of equanimity, then it includes everything. And we're not holding anything out because, no, no, life can't be like that. I can only take this. We're not resisting. We're not holding on. It's, there's a freedom there. There's a freedom that comes with equanimity. And it leads to ever-deepening insight, the wisdom, the liberating wisdom that comes because we can so, see so deeply into a moment's experience. It's a teaching to us. We see the whole change, the process of life happening in a moment. We can see that, the cycle of life. And we don't tend to fixate on the beauty, nor do we fixate on what's awful in life. We see the whole cycle of life without fixating on anything at all. We don't fixate on the beauty of a budding flower, nor do we fixate on its dying. But we see that it's just a cycle. One thing turns into compost for another to grow. So why? Why why do we do this practice, all these practices, and the practice of equanimity that intertwines all of these four Brahma-viharas? Because it's easy to see, but sometimes uh, what's easy is the most hidden from us, or we don't acknowledge it enough. Because we live in harmony with this world when we can be more at ease with what's going on. There's that phrase that sometimes we use in the metta practice, may I be at ease with all the conditions of my life. Not placated, not resigned, but just at ease, open. May I be at ease. May I be in harmony. So it allows us for that kind of harmony. And that harmony creates a safety for us where we can feel more safe inwardly and outwardly in this world. And of course, with that kind of safety, we feel and simultaneously we experience more wholesome states of mind which create an even safer container for us to grow and deepen in. And all of that supports our spiritual growth, our deepening into life. All powerful conditions for practice, for liberation. But it takes time It takes a lot of patience, which equanimity is in a way. It's a lot of patience. Uh, Unrelenting, gentle patience with everything. With each other and with ourselves and with the world. Knowing that we can't change it all out there, but we can change how it is in here 
bit by bit. So I'd like to end with this um, poem by William Stafford. And it's from the book, The Way It Is. And the poem is called The Gift. Time wants to show you a different country. It's the one that your life conceals. The one waiting outside when curtains are drawn. The one grandmother hinted at in her crochet design. The one almost found over the edge of the music after the sermon. It's the way life is, and you have it. It's a balance, the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been and how people and weather treated you. It's a country where you already are, bringing where you have been. Time offers this gift in its millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every moment. Here, take it. It's yours. So let's sit for a moment. I live my life in growing orbits which move out over the things of the world. Perhaps I can never achieve the last, but I give myself to it.